This is Science Drives and Wellness Steers, Season 2. I'm your host, Allie. When I was in school, the most unhelpful and frequent thing I was told was she'd do so great if she just focused. The thing I never heard was how to focus. So I've dedicated my career to helping parents and educators do better. Moving from just pay attention to let me teach you how to pay attention. Let me teach you how to harness the superpowers of your brain. I've been the clinical director and therapist for Magnificent Minds for over a decade and have been supporting teachers, parents, and therapists of neurodivergent kiddos for even longer. Professionally, I'm admittedly an eclectic mix with formal training in counseling psychology and behavioral sciences. I don't fit neatly into a box, which I guess is something I have in common with the spectacularly unique kiddos I support. I combine my love of science with my connection to the pursuit of wellness and find myself at the midpoint of behavioral science and mental health, looking through the lens of neurodiversity. I'm a hippie at heart, avoiding pseudoscience, gluten, and ableism. I'm a political advocate and a passionate writer who is not afraid to have hard conversations. I'm a sometimes all over the place, not always put together mom of three, entrepreneur, and a wife who was voted most likely to speak out of turn in just about every year of elementary school which surprises no one who knows me. You can look up my business at magnificentminds.ca or do a full social media stalking on Instagram at magminds, on TikTok at therapymagminds, on my blog, of course in my podcast, or even sign up to receive monthly updates via my newsletter. But don't worry, spam isn't my jam. Thanks for taking a bit of time and joining my community. I look forward to going on this journey with you. Sorry to interrupt your hyperfocus, but I just had to come on and give you guys a secret promo code that is only for listeners of my podcast. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to my website, magnificentminds.ca. You're going to click workshop and resources. Once you navigate through all of the cool resources there, like virtual classes, guidebooks, assessments, all kinds of good stuff. You're going to click view more. When you get to the checkout page of whatever you want to buy, you're going to put in the promo code secret. It's going to give you a secret discount and it's only for my podcast subscribers. So enjoy and let me know how you like it. In our last episode, we left off talking about how to teach self-regulation, how to teach antecedent skills, self-awareness, coping mechanisms, all of those core components of teaching self-regulation in an autistic population. I walked you through a good 55 minutes of how to do it, what to think about, things to consider. So if you haven't listened to that episode, that's the part one episode, go back, listen to that one, and then meet me back here once you've absorbed all of that. What we're going to get into today is what you need to do while you're doing all that work to develop those proactive strategies or that proactive toolbox of tactics and coping mechanisms. You need that reactive plan for navigating the big feelings that are bound to pop up, right? We're all human. We all have big feelings and, you know, we can do all this great teaching, you know, all this antecedent strategy, you know, selection and usage where we're teaching our kids about self-awareness and how to, you know, identify their feelings and work through their emotions and live a life mindfully, right? A life where we use coping strategies before we need them. But at the end of the day, 
we're going to need coping strategies and we're going to need a plan for when things bubble over because, you know, coping strategies are awesome and working through big feelings is awesome and self-regulation, also awesome. But we still need to know what to do when, you know, we don't get ahead of our feelings, when we are reactive, you know, instead of responsive, when we, you know, have a big reaction or for lack of a better way to describe it, we cry over spilt milk or, you know, cry over being told no or, you know, we cry maybe literally or maybe figuratively over not getting what we want in the moment. So what is a parent going to do as they're teaching self-regulation when they realize, okay, I've done the work to teach or I'm still in the process of teaching perhaps and I am met with a big feeling. What is my plan? What is my formula? So here are some guiding principles that I think will be helpful for you to remember as you're trying to navigate those big feelings while still keeping in the back of your mind that ultimate goal of achieving self-regulation. So step one, you're going to show up neutrally. Okay, you want to model the state that you want to guide them to. You are steering the ship. You don't want to match the state that they're already in. All that's going to do is further the state that they're already in. Instead, you know, you want to model the state you want them to go to. If you want them to be calm, you want to model calm. If they're at a level five, a peak escalation, you want to come in and model the level that you want them to meet you at. Okay, don't match their level, model where you want them to meet you. That's the first step, show up neutrally. The second step is to validate the emotions. How do you do this? You do it by labeling the emotions. This is so important for making connections and maintaining that rapport, even in a big you know, moment or a big feeling. You want them to feel heard. You wanna say something like, you're mad. You know, and then you can even validate why they're mad. You're mad, you know, you really want chocolate milk. Or, you know, you're mad, you don't want to do homework. Okay, so that's the validating piece. And that's the piece that really allows you to maintain that connection, even when you move ahead and continue to place firm boundaries, which is what I'm going to coach you on next. Okay, so the next thing you're going to do is empathize. So you've shown up neutrally, you validated their emotions, and now you're going to empathize with their message. You're going to tell them, you know, I know you're mad, you know, you want to leave the park. And, you know, I understand what you're trying to tell me with your big behavior. You're empathizing, you're saying, I can understand that leaving the park is hard. It's hard for me to leave something super fun too. So to just rewind and show you what this all looks like all together, right? You show up neutrally in a calm state. You validate their emotions. You're mad, right? You're labeling it. You don't want to leave the park. And then you're empathizing with their message. So you're saying, I can understand that leaving the park is hard. I get it, buddy. Leaving something that is so fun is hard for me too. Or you might be more concrete if you have a kiddo who, you know, less is more for them, especially when they're escalated. You might just say, you're mad. I can understand that. The fourth thing you're going to do is reiterate the expectation, okay? But it's time to leave the park because it's getting dark. But, you know, we have to clean up our toys because it's time for dinner. And in reiterating the expectation, you know, you are having this come right after you've empathized and validated, but you are letting them know that yes, even having said that, even understanding what you're saying, I hear you, I see you, but still the expectation is 
the thing I said. And oftentimes what you're reiterating or that expectation is the initial thing that was the trigger, right? So I see you, I, you know, I, I'm hearing your feelings, I understand your message, even still, you know, nevertheless, the expectation is still the same. And then you're going to redirect them. This is the final step. And it's really important because you don't want to just leave them at the reiterate stage, right? You don't want to just say, but it's time to leave the park and then leave them to their own devices, right? You want to tell them what to do next. So you're going to redirect them in a way that allows them to meet your expectation. So you might say, you know, in your reiterating your expectation, you know, statement, you might say, but it's time to leave the park because it's getting dark. And then in your redirect statement, you might say, so we're going to leave the park in three, two, one. And then you're going to help them. You're going to, you know, redirect them any way you need to, depending on, you know, the need of your kiddo in the specific situation. So let's put this all together. And I'm going to show you what this sort of formula looks like when you just put all the pieces together. So you show up neutrally, right? In any, in any way that your body and voice can demonstrate that. And then you say something like, you're mad. You don't want to leave the park. I can understand that. Leaving the park is hard. It's super hard for me to leave something super fun too. You're mad. I can understand that. So that would be one or the other, right? You're not necessarily going to say both, depending on the language of your kiddo. And you're going to say, but it's time to leave the park because it's getting dark. So we're going to leave and we're going to do it in three, two, one. So you can see, you know, with this sort of guiding, you know, these guiding principles, I don't want, it's like a formula, but I don't want to call it a formula because I don't want you to get stuck. You know, um, I want you to be flexible with its delivery, but with this, you know, this guiding framework. You're able to show up in a way that models where you want them to go in terms of affect, right? You're not coming in hot, they're hot. And that's our instinct, right? If they yell, we yell because they can't hear us. Instead, if they yell, you know, we're going to whisper. We're going to come in in the way we want them, you know, to show up. And we're going to go through this process and in doing it, we're going to be able to acknowledge and hopefully provide a learning opportunity, you know, with respect to their emotions, where we're connecting these abstract ideas of, of emotions and feelings that we've been discussing and learning about and connect it, you know, to this real life situation. In so doing, we're also going to make sure that we are hearing them, right? Because emotions and feelings and you know, behavior, it all says something. We need our kids to know that we understand the message they're giving us and you know, we understand it and we hear them, but still the expectation is the expectation. This is important because if we don't show up and validate their message and empathize with their message, then our kids can spiral because they feel like we don't understand. No, you don't get it. I don't want to leave the park. So it's like, no, no, I, I do get it. You don't want to leave the park. I hear that. However, you know, we have to leave the park. And as long as we ensure that we are you know, addressing the message that they're trying to deliver with their behavior, number one, you know, they feel heard. And number two, you know, we're allowing them an opportunity to realize that the way they're sending the message is not the way that's going to yield the outcome that they want. The other piece of that is, you know, if you had said it's time to, to leave the park or whatever the expectation is, and your kiddo had said, oh, I was having so much fun. Can I have two more minutes? To me, that would be a really big win. And in that situation, I might actually reinforce that and say, yeah, you know what? I really love how you asked. You can absolutely have two more minutes, okay? Because what they've done in that situation is they've communicated the same message. I don't want to leave the park, but they've done so in a way that is more appropriate and that is more likely to be connected with them getting what they want at the end of the day, you know, their message being received and, you know, us saying, sure, yeah, no problem. 
Of course, there will be times where they might say very nicely, oh, that's disappointing. I was really hoping to have another minute to play. Can I? And you might say, you know what, buddy? Love how you asked. Having, you know, having said that or however, you have to go because, you know, dinner's ready or whatever it is. But all of this just to say, the way that you respond to those big behaviors not only impacts, you know, how it goes in the moment in terms of maintaining the connection and them feeling heard, but it also impacts what happens next time. Because if they realize that this really, really big reaction, this big behavior, this big feeling didn't yield the outcome that they wanted, which was, say, for example, staying at the park, another time they might try something a little bit different. Like, for example, saying, that's disappointing, can I have a few more minutes? Okay. A few mistakes to avoid at peak escalation. So when you're going through this sort of guiding framework, let's call it, um, you might be tempted to make some of these mistakes. So what I'm going to do is unpack a couple common errors or missteps that I have seen parents make or that I have been tempted to make myself and caught myself or maybe I did it in the moment and then after I realized what I did. So here are some of those mistakes. Okay, These are things to avoid in a peak escalation. So it can be really tempting to prompt a coping strategy when your kiddo is at peak escalation. So think back to, you know, part one of this episode where we talked about that, you know, that volcano or that mountain or that level, you know, level one to five, that scale. Think of your kid at their peak escalation. Peak, peak feelings, emotions, behaviors, all of it. In that moment, it can be so tempting to tell them, you know, oh, you just need to use a coping strategy. This is this is what coping strategies are for so that you don't reach this point, right? I want you to fight that urge. Instead, what I want you to do is let them ride the wave of emotion, okay? I want you to model using a coping strategy, maybe a few coping strategies. And I want you to model this only when they begin to slowly regulate on their own. So when they start to come down the peak, maybe they're at a level four, okay? If you're using a number scale. Maybe they're just slowly coming down the other side of their mountain, okay? If they join you while you are modeling a coping strategy, so for example, you might start doing hand breathing, or you might start, you know, doing some purposeful motor movements, um, jumping jacks maybe. You might start drawing. You might start reading quietly to yourself. If they join you, great. If not, I want you to continue to model this coping strategy. And you're going to do this instead of uh, suggesting or demanding, as it sometimes comes out in the heat of the moment, that they use a coping strategy. So when they're at peak escalation, fight the urge to tell them to take a deep breath or to choose a coping strategy. Instead, let them ride the wave and model a few possible coping strategies that would be appropriate for that setting. Okay, so that's the key too, right? Context is everything. If they're in their bedroom, it might not be possible to run laps. If they're at the park, it might be. You know, if they are in the sandbox, it might not be appropriate to engage in a game of, you know, catch or something to distract them. If they're, you know, in the field, it might be. So your coping strategies, your distraction or your, you know, mindfulness strategies or your, you know, movement strategies are all going to be dependent on number one, you know, your level of escalation and number two, where you are and what is appropriate. So this is a perfect time to model some of those strategies that might be appropriate and matched to both their level of escalation and also the physical environment that they're in. Okay, the second thing. So it can be really tempting to try and use reason or logic um, when your kiddo is at peak escalation. So you might say something like, who cares if your cup is blue and you wanted pink? A cup is a cup. 
right? We've all been in that situation. Like, why are you freaking out so much? Because your sock is orange and you wanted it to be red or because I think it's pink and you think it's red. None of it matters, right? So we want to use logic. We want to try to make them see, right? That what they're, you know, anxious or stressed about is irrational. I want you to avoid that temptation. Instead, I want you to remember it's not usually about what it's about. Okay, it's not about the color of the cup. It's about control or it's about, you know, some idea that they had in their head about how it was going to go. It's not just about the cup. So while we can talk to them and tell them that, you know, a cup is a cup and it doesn't matter, that's not overly helpful in the moment when it comes to managing those feelings. Sometimes, you know, it's going to be as simple as being mad about just the color. Like they literally wanted red because red is their favorite color. But sometimes, and I won't even say sometimes, I'll say oftentimes, it's something much deeper than that, right? Control, autonomy, feeling unheard, you know, having had this idea of how this routine was going to play out. Dialogue about the cup specifically is oftentimes not going to solve the problem, okay? So fight that urge to, you know, articulate how irrational it is, even though, you know, you might, in your own, you know, more regulated state, you might realize that it's irrational. And your kiddo even, you know, once they're more regulated, may think back to that situation later on and realize that they had a really big reaction over something that was arbitrary or, you know, irrational. But in the moment, fight that temptation and just hold space and try to support them through those feelings. Okay, it can be extremely tempting to argue or to engage in this back and forth. No, yes, no, yes. But this kind of escalation, you know, between you, this reciprocal engagement only furthers the escalation and, and that, you know, furthers the, the feelings, the emotions, the, you know, levels of anxiety and, and dysregulation. What I want you to do instead is to reiterate and redirect maybe once or twice, okay? So it's okay to, you know, if they say, no, I won't clean my room, you might say, yes, you know, we're going to clean our room, we're going to do it, and then we're going to go to the park or whatever it is. And you might say, no, you might say, no, you know, we, we are, yes, we're going to clean our room, and first we're going to clean our room, and then we're going to go to the park. And they might say no again. And I want you to fight the urge to let this go on and on and on, okay? Reiterate that expectation once or twice, and then don't engage in further dialogue, because they've heard you, right? And you're being consistent in your delivery. You're saying the same thing. You don't need to keep saying it, and you're hearing them, right? They're saying no. You're like, all right, you know what? I hear you. You're not doing it right now, but you will do it ultimately, right? And we don't need to go back and forth in this reciprocal dialogue. It's not helpful, and oftentimes what is more helpful is just the time and space to allow for the person to regulate. Um, but that back and forth, that yes, no, that push-pull oftentimes just furthers the escalation and doesn't actually allow the kiddo the time and space to regulate to a point where we can then come in and support them with coping strategies or even just self-reflection on, you know, how they did in that moment. The thing that's important to remember too is that, you know, you have these arguments, this yes, no, this, you know, you will, you won't kinds of arguments with good intentions, right? You're trying to reiterate your expectation and, you know, I'm the first to say, you know, reiterate the expectation and redirect. That's part of my, you know, framework. But that comes with, you know, a period at the end of it, you know, say it once, period, that's it. We're done talking about it. And if you need to, you know, you can say, I'll say this one more time and then I won't say it again. Um, and then stick to your guns. You know, if you say, I won't say it again, then, then, Truly, don't don't say it again. Um, so those are the those are the common errors, okay? Or the things you really need to fight fight yourself, fight your temptation to do, because those are the 
those are the, the mistakes. And they're, they're, they're not mistakes. They're just, they're not the most effective way to respond. And they're the things that in my opinion and my experience can be almost inst instinctive. Like you, you just, you, someone says no, and you want to say yes. And these are things that we have to fight, you know, our own urge to, to be reactive in these moments, right? We're not trying to react to the feelings. We're just trying to, you know, respond to the behavior. So the next thing that I think is really important to talk about, you know, we have a plan for what to do when we see big behaviors, you know, we have a, a framework or a plan for avoiding those pitfalls or those, you know, knee-jerk reactions that we might have. The next thing and, and the last thing that I think is really the most important way to end this all off is how to build a toolbox. So how do I, you know, I've taught my kid how to identify their emotions and we're working on it. You know, we're doing all of these things throughout the day to maintain regulation, you know, moving our bodies, we're connecting, we're maintaining our relationship, we're navigating the big feelings together. How do I build a toolbox and how do I know more specifically what kinds of coping strategies go in a toolbox? What is a toolbox, right? It's this metaphorical concept of, you know, a place where strategies and coping mechanisms are stored, right? So how do we do it? How do we build this toolbox? Is it a real thing? Is it an idea? Help me, right? So here are a couple things that I think will be helpful as you're trying to figure out how to build your kid's toolbox or, frankly, how you're trying to build your own toolbox as a parent and your own coping mechanisms. So the first thing is to normalize taking space. So I say this a lot. I say this in sessions, you know, with, with parents. I say this on social media. I say it in my own house. Taking space is not a punishment. And if you are inadvertently using it as a punishment, like when somebody in your house is angry, you know, possibly your partner, possibly your kids, um, you know, you might say, you know, you're, you're really grumpy. You need to go to your room. You need to take some space. What you're doing in that situation is making it punitive, right? You're saying you're, you're feeling a certain thing or doing a certain thing or behaving a certain way. You know, you, you need to go to your room or to whatever, right? To the backyard, to the basement. You need to go away from everyone because you can't be kind around people. And I think the intention is good, right? We all need space to reset. But I think a better way to handle it is to normalize taking space before you need it. So mommy's going to take some space right now. I'm feeling like I need to just take some space to take a couple deep breaths, um, or do some stretches, whatever it is that is in my own mommy coping, uh, coping mechanism toolbox. Um, and I want you to do it for your kids too. And I want you to get in the habit of, you know, making quiet time. I don't want to say a privilege because it's not something that needs to be earned, um, but I, I don't want it to be a prescribed consequence either. So I want quiet time in your house to be something that just happens. It happens regardless of feelings. It happens like nap time or like brushing your teeth. It's just a part of every day. Okay, there's a time we have quiet time and it doesn't have to be a time on the clock. It can be a time relative to something else that's done, you know, when we get home, um, after we have snack, whatever it is. And quiet time is a time for the individuals in your house, the kids, the grown-ups, to be as independent and quiet and alone as is age and developmentally appropriate. So you can take quiet time, you know, or take space in the same room as each other if that's what's safest, but it really means that it's not engagement time. It's not, you know, the mommy show. It's not the daddy show. It's not entertain the kids show. It's each person in the house is responsible for engaging in some quiet activity and quiet will be defined based on your own standards. It doesn't have to be silent unless that's what you want. And it's something that happens every day. And it's something that becomes comfortable. Um, 
And then after that is part of your normal routine, your every day, or, you know, several times a week, however you want to structure it, then you can use that, you know, that as a redirection when you're feeling big feelings or when your kiddo is feeling big feelings, you know, oh, I can tell that you are feeling a little bit anxious right now. But do you think it would be helpful for you to take some space and maybe go and, you know, read quietly? Once you've already paired quiet time or taking space with um, reinforcement and the things that your kiddo likes and just a normal part of your day, that will kind of be like saying, oh, you look thirsty. Would you like a drink? Okay? So it's no longer punitive. It's just cause and effect. You can drink all day long. In fact, I encourage you to have water all day long. But if I notice that you look thirsty or you're sweating, I might say, hey, do you want a drink? And because of that and because of the previous association, it no longer feels like it feels when someone's angry and you say, take a deep breath. Okay, so that's the first thing. Normalize taking space. The second thing is I want you to move every day with your kids. And that doesn't just mean, you know, um, embedding opportunities to have active play. It also means, you know, recognizing that high energy movement and lower energy movement um, are going to both have equal benefits at different times throughout the day. Okay, I want you to realize that exercise elicits many of the same feelings as peak escalation. Okay, I'm going to say that again because it's really important. Exercise elicits many of the same bodily feelings as peak escalation. This is extremely important for providing a replacement way for that, you know, that, that need to feel the juices flowing, but without relying on peak escalation as a way to regulate. So what does that mean? So it means that we can use movement proactively as a you know, coping strategy in our toolbox where we actually elicit those almost stress responses where the heart rate is, is you know, increasing, we're sweating, we might be flush, um, our breathing, you know, changes. These are all physical feelings that we have when we are in a moment of peak escalation. So what happens is sometimes kids need to feel all of that, you know, that feels like adrenaline. They need to feel that in order to come over the peak of their escalation. You know, I talk about this a lot when it comes to sort of rewiring the way that we manage emotions and hopefully not getting to a point where the only way we can come down our peak is by climbing over the top of the mountain, right? We want to be able to give our kids other ways to feel that rush of, you know, hormones, endorphins, whatever it is, um, in a way that is, is productive and in a way that, you know, makes them feel good as opposed to making them feel, you know, depleted and overwhelmed and tired. Um, the next thing that I want you to do is I want you to provide matched sensory experiences as a strategy in your toolbox. Okay, what does that mean? It means you have to understand your kiddo's sensory preferences. Are they a sensory seeker or a sensory avoider? I want you to provide opportunities to access sensory experiences daily, both proactively, so, you know, as just fun activities to promote engagement and self-regulation, and also when you start to notice subtle signs of escalation. So, you know, what are some forms of sensory input that you can think about or that you can, you know, possibly consider as you know, options for your kiddo? Well, it depends on whether they like, you know, either sort of more prone to being a sensory seeker or they're more prone to being a sensory avoider. And it might vary based on the particular sense, right? You might be sort of a avoidant to smell, but seeking to sound. Um, and that's okay too. So a couple of different things that you might be able to, you know, find as just things that are in your house that might be a good 
way to provide your kiddo with sensory experiences matched to their need that will help with regulation. So headphones with music can be really regulating if you know you like being you're a seeker for sound. Um, noise canceling headphones, for example, would be the opposite of that if you're more avoidant to sound. Um, crash mats. So a crash mat is essentially, I mean, I've made DIY crash mats and basically what it is when I DIY it is an old duvet cover stuffed with pillows, blankets, maybe even stuffies if you have, or stuffed animals if you have an abundance of those like I do. And it becomes this really big soft landing place for your kid where they literally just run and crash into it. Okay, so if your kid is a sensory seeker who loves, you know, rough play, high impact play, lots of touch and feel, um, Crash Mat is amazing because it gives them that opportunity to run and crash into that mat in a safe way. Um, and it elicits those same feelings, but it doesn't, you know, they don't, they don't have to be mad to punch a pillow, you know, they can have that, that sensory feedback in a way that's matched to their needs as a proactive way to maintain regulation. Uh, you know, tight hugs or squeezes can be great for a kiddo that likes, you know, that's a seeker for touch or, you know, deep pressure. Um, belly rubs or tickles can be really great too. If you've got a kiddo who tends to be a bit more avoidant, you might, they might not like a tight hug, but they might like a gentle tickle. You know, space and solitude can be an amazing sensory experience or, you know, almost like a state of deprivation of sensory experience. That can be really recharging for some people. For some kids, you know, visually stimulating art activities, lots of colors, textures, different kinds of, you know, forms of, of media, art can be really, really stimulating and regulating for them. And then there's tactile experiences, right? So anything from a rice bin to water play to dry pasta, lentils, you know, cotton balls, anything you can think of that's in your house already that you put into sensory bin can be an opportunity for your kiddo to have, you know, sensory experiences in a way that, that are regulating for them. The last thing that is actually two more, two more things that I want to talk about. So creating a safe space. So this ties into normalizing taking space, right? Where do I go when I take space? Well, creating a safe space, a cozy corner, really any kind of environment that is inviting and warm can be really powerful for ensuring that your kiddo has somewhere to go when they're starting to feel those low levels of escalation. The key here is we're not using this as a consequence, right? You're, you're not being put in timeout when you're there. And, and if that's the way that it's going, then, then you're not using it in the intended way. And like I said, with normalizing taking space, we want to make you know use of this safe space or this cozy corner, you know, uh, a non-contingent occurrence throughout the day. So what that means is whether they're happy, whether they're sad, whether they're grumpy, it's a place that is available to them and used, you know, routinely throughout their day. It's a place that has things they love, that is a place that they go when they would like to, and not as a consequence for demonstrating a particular emotion. It can sometimes be helpful to have visuals in there if you're using visuals to anchor your self-regulation skill development or teaching, you know, your mounting, your, you know, rating scale. Those kinds of things can be great to put up in a cozy corner. Um, but for some kids, they don't want to see that. So you really just have to follow the lead of your kiddo and know what is, is going to be helpful for them. And, and the only way to know is really to try and to see and to bring them into the conversation too. Would you like to have, you know, this visual of this volcano in here so that when you come in here, you can remember and you can identify, you know, how you're feeling? Oh, you would? Okay, great. Let's do it. Oh, you know, you don't think so? You think that would be maybe stressful for you? No problem. It doesn't have to be there. Okay. The very last thing, and this, I promise, is the actual last thing. 
establish through teaching, okay, clear contingencies for navigating both objectively positive and negative experiences. So what does that mean? Okay, so it means that it's it's great to be able to, you know, identify your feelings in yourself and in others. It's great to be able to list your coping mechanisms. Oh, you know, what are some things you can do when you're stressed? Oh, you can go for a walk, you can talk to a grown-up, you can, you know, bead a necklace, a color, I don't know, right? Watch YouTube, whatever it is. It's great to know all those things. But the most important thing is the connection between knowing when I'm feeling this. I can do this if I don't like how I'm feeling and I want to change it, right? So it's not just about being able to know what your coping strategies are and know what your feelings are, but how do they connect, right? In a way that actually leads to self-regulation. So, you know, you're establishing these contingencies for them in a pretty concrete way early on so that they can navigate those, you know, good and bad feelings. And of course, you know, I use good and bad very, you know, loosely here because there are no good and bad feelings, but good and bad relative to that person in that moment. Does this feel good to me right now? Does this feel bad to me right now? So you might establish contingencies like if I feel, you know, blank emotion or if I, um, you know, if I feel whatever emotion, happy, sad, whatever, then I can engage in my coping strategy. So this might be a formula that you teach them. If I blank, then I can blank, right? If I am happy, then I can, I don't know, ask my friends if they want to play. If I am feeling sad, then I can. What can I do if I'm feeling sad? Go to my cozy corner, take space, ask for help, whatever it is. So you're providing them this framework of not just, you know, assuming that they've already identified their emotion. If I feel this emotion, then what's next, right? What do I do? How do I know, you know, what the next step is? So we create these contingencies for them, and then we let them have the flexibility to choose which applies to which setting by letting them fill in the blanks. So they decide what emotion they're feeling, and then they also decide what, you know, is matched to it, whether it's a sensory experience or whether it's, you know, a motor activity, whatever it is. You know, it might look like if I can't sleep, I can practice my visualization um, game. I can say five things I'm grateful for. I can play a word association game in my mind. Um, it might, you know, sound something like if I feel angry, then I can take space. I can say how I feel. I can color. I can listen to music. Um, it might, you know, sound something like if I feel excited, then I can go for a walk, I can have a dance party, I can do some jumping jacks. And this is all really important because coping skills are not just for anger. Coping skills are not just for sadness. Coping skills are for ensuring that the feeling that you're having right now is matched to the environment that you're in, number one, and number two is matched to where you want to be. So if I'm feeling really, really excited, okay, and I'm jumping out of my skin, but I'm in an assembly at school, that's not going to work, right? I need to, I need to somehow self-regulate in a way that allows me to participate in what I'm doing, you know, mindfully and appropriately. Um, you know, it might be that if I feel excited and I'm at an assembly at school, I can ask to go for a walk, right? If I don't think I'm going to be able to get the excitement out. Or, you know, it might be if I feel excited and I'm at an assembly at school, then I can, you know, use my breathing strategies. I can, um, you know, think of something in my head that makes me whatever, right? Um, whatever state I want to get to. So I think the idea here is that, you know, the, the final step of this is, is really establishing, and you're doing this through teaching, right? And also through, you know, dialogue and, and, and modeling, establishing these clear contingencies for if I feel blank or if I have blank challenge, right? So it's about a feeling if I feel sad, but it's also about if I have, you know, a challenge, like I can't fall asleep at night. But that's not really a feeling unless you were to say, you know, um, if I feel awake and it's time to go to bed. Um, but ultimately, the idea here is that 
we are using this if-then contingency and we're letting them fill in the blanks in a way that aligns with their needs in terms of letting them participate you know, in the world around them, in terms of letting them choose how they want to feel. Because ultimately, if you're sad, but you want to be sad, then okay, right? Then let's go with that. You can choose if you, you know, sometimes we have to sit in our feelings and that's okay. And if I'm sad and I want to be sad, then I can. What are some things you can do if you just want to stay sad? Well, you know, maybe you can listen to sad music. And you know, that might seem that might seem weird for some people because they're like, well, why would you want to be sad? But I mean, as grownups, sometimes we just want to sit in our feelings and that's okay. And if I want to stay sad, then I'm going to listen to some sad music or watch a sad movie or whatever it is. At the end of the day, the idea of coping strategies is not to prescribe the feeling or emotion someone should be having, but to help them guide themselves to whatever they want to be having. If you want to be regulated, if you want to be happy, if you want to be excited, if you want to be, you know, sad, mad, whatever it is, you know, let's teach you how to use strategies that are mapped with where you want to go. Much of the time, you know, it's going to be, if I'm mad and I want to be happy, here's what I can do. You know, if I'm mad and I want to be, you know, excited, here are some things I can do. And that's probably the most common application. But it's important too to remember that sometimes it's okay to sit in our feelings. And if your kiddo is saying, you know, I feel sad and I want to be sad because I want to feel these feelings, that's okay too. Thanks for listening to another episode of Science Drives Wellness Steers. It's been amazing hanging out with you, and I am so grateful for your willingness to let me in. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a rating. I'm a behaviorist, remember, and I am all about that reinforcement and that data. Until next time, stay well and stay grounded.